For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Within hours of the Senate passing a bill allowing anyone over 21 to carry a gun without a permit or training, it gets signed by Governor Stitt. Neva, your thoughts on this now law taking effect November 1st? No surprise. And it it clearly, uh, when you think about it, uh, every candidate uh, in the Republican gubernatorial uh, race last year signed on and supported permitless carry. So this was a this was a bill that's time had come. The issues that came up in the last session were worked through and in fact even a trailer bill, a companion bill that uh, uh, allows for municipalities to have uh, parks and zoos and those things uh, uh, added to the uh, added to allow for concealed carry not to take place uh, it was uh, in the mix on this. So really there was uh, strong support. And I think uh, when Governor Stitt quickly signed it, uh, what he said was this was not only uh, strong support within the legislative uh, chambers, but also uh, across Oklahoma. So I think uh, I, I think we're seeing, we're seeing that uh, borne out by the uh, response that we're getting. Right. Now, I think the real story with this piece of legislation are the trailer bills that uh, Neva mentioned. You know, those are bills that would allow municipalities to say we're not going to allow and parks primarily the biggest lobby for that has been Tulsa and and organizations in Tulsa and Oklahoma City with Oklahoma City they want to keep it out of the scissor tail park they want to keep it out of the gathering place in Tulsa you see the NBA showing up saying we don't want this at Thunder Games or in even around the arena they want to be able to have that an area it's going to be really difficult to enforce that now Uh, you know law enforcement are going to have a difficult time enforcing who can and can't carry I mean can you just walk up to somebody that's carrying and say you know this is a restricted area can I see your permit. I mean, those are those are going to be some interactions that um, I think are going to be unlikely. So it's going to be difficult to police. And the reason that these organizations and these uh, municipal government entities want these uh, restrictions is because they know it's not safe. You know, these bills don't make us safer. And the idea that it's consistent with the Second Amendment when the Second Amendment starts off with a well-regulated militia, you know, this takes away virtually all regulations in the state of Oklahoma. This moves us to a time where we have looser gun laws than we've ever had in our nation's history, including the Wild West. The Wild West had stricter gun laws than Oklahoma has right now. <laughs> but we also have 15 other states that have enacted very similar laws. So, I mean, this notion that the that the Wild West is going to uh, kind of open up and this is going to be this huge problem. I mean, there's just nothing uh, in in any of these other states that they could point to that really reflected that as being, you know, a potential reality. So oh, I think we'll I think the I think we'll see that come up again in future legislative sessions. But the real key issues, colleges and universities, uh, the presidents that that were so uh, strongly uh, weighing in on this issue, the the business community and and having uh, you know having their views uh, heard those issues were resolved uh, you know in the framework of the, of this legislation and i think that's why it sailed through so easily but we are in an epidemic of gun violence almost every single day we see a mass shooting uh, in this country and instead of tightening gun laws you know the wild west you had to check your guns either at the end of the saloon or even maybe at the edge of town as, as per law uh, and so you know, instead of tightening gun restrictions in this country right now in this epidemic of gun violence here we are as the state of oklahoma making it easier to possess and carry these firearms I, in public again, it also brings up the question why why so fast i mean for example yesterday a senate committee or house committee passed colas a cost of living increase for our our senior citizens who have worked 
worked for the state of Oklahoma. That will slowly make its way through this, the House, the Senate. Why is this the most important bill that has to come out of the Senate? I, I think it's because it's a continuation of this whole discussion from the last session. This is not a bill that just kind of popped up and no one had had any opportunity to really fully vet it, go through a long process, the give and take, the compromises, the the additions, I mean, all of the concerns, I mean, uh, making sure that uh, the mentally ill and, and convicted felons, I mean, all of these, all of these uh, current uh, points that are in law right now didn't change. Change. I mean, so what it was was trying to bring uh, bring together the most comprehensive bill that accomplished what the majority of uh, law-abiding, you know, Second Amendment folks across Oklahoma really wanted to see become a reality. A Senate committee does pass five bills giving more power to the governor over agencies. The measures allow the governor to hire heads of transportation, corrections, mental health and substance abuse, the health care authority and juvenile affairs. While eliminating the governor, governing boards and commissions, Ryan, does this give too much power to the governor? Well, and there are the two distinct bills. One of them allows for the boards and commissions to remain in place, uh, but the individuals serving on those boards and commissions would serve at will. So you know, they could be fired or removed at any time, which to me doesn't sound like a board at all. If, if, you're, if your board members don't have some sort of set terms or some sort of removal for cause provision, but they can just be replaced at the whim of whoever's at the head of that board, especially if that, uh, the person at the head of that board is there uh, at the uh, appointment of the governor, you know, we really don't end up in a situation. I think that we're confusing the concentration and consolidation of power here with accountability and transparency. I, I understand where the governor wants to have more control over uh, the way that these agencies work. And I, I, under, I appreciate that the governor says that he wants the buck to stop with him. But at the same time, these boards and commissions play very valuable roles. And if we make them at will, we basically take away any teeth that they have. And if we put all of this power in the governor's office, then I think that we're politicizing or potentially politicizing these very important administrative and bureaucratic positions. I think the, le the legislature will come to regret this at some point, even if they feel like they've got a good relationship with this governor. <clears throat> that's not always going to be the case. And there's an important check and balance that we have with the administration of government in Oklahoma that has existed since statehood over 100 years now. And we can point, obviously, to ways that we can make it better, but to eliminate the entire system uh, with one with one fell swoop, I think, is a mistake. Neva, Oklahoma City Democratic uh, Senator Julia Kurt said that you know she was worried that because these boards, these commissions, they have these meetings, and that's where we have transparency. That's where the public gets to see what's going on. If you eliminate those. You, you, you eliminate a little bit of the transparency. And yet in that debate, Senator Julie Daniels, who has been um, prior to becoming coming to the state Senate, she was on two, two state boards or commissions. And what she said was really in the last 20 years, I mean, she really felt like that she was not making anything more accountable or transplant, transparent. If anything, she was really uh, those boards and commissions often muddy the, you know, kind of muddy the, the waters. So I think I think the give and take on boards and commissions is a work in progress. I think we have this difference now uh, being very kind of clearly uh, borne out between the Senate and the House, the Senate wanting just kind of their clean deal, get rid of the boards and commissions, the House saying we would like them. In fact, we would like the configuration to make it more uh, more con more controlled by the legislature, by the legislature. And I think they'll I think they'll come up with some compromise. I think the governor's already said, look, I can live with the, the fact that the boards continue uh, to be in place as long as I can hire and fire the agency director. Uh, but I do believe that we need to have something in place, he says, if there's a conflict 
conflict of interest or something where those members can be removed. So I think there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, intricate parts to this, but the kind of the long and the short of it is it's a centerpiece uh, point for the governor in his first uh, first year in office now that he wants to see this legislature pass. And I think I think it'll continue to move through the process. I mean, we may not see uh, what the real end result's going to be till much later in this session, right. but I think we will go. see something. Yeah. That has a long way to go. So we'll, we'll probably talk to us about yeah, this. And we'll probably see some border commission re, uh, remain at the end of this legislative session. I think it'll, the real question, the real compromise point is going to be over how you remove those members. Is it, you know, do you have to demonstrate a conflict of interest or is it just this person raised a question in that board and commission that I don't like and so they're out of there? It's what kind of looks like. And of course, the State Board of Education, because in 2009, this whole thing came up and the, gov- the Republicans gave the governor, Mary Fallon, its time her ability to hire and fire all of everybody on the state board of education. So it didn't really affect them then, but I think that's kind of the idea that what they're going for, for the rest of the boards. The other side of this is, you know, I've said the legislature may come to regret this. The governor may come to regret this, whether it's this governor or or the next, you know, having all of that power comes with a lot. I mean, he says he wants the buck to stop with him. You know, maybe a couple of years from now, he may not want that. But if you want true accountability and true transparency, this seems to me to be the most, uh, uh, the best vehicle that's been laid on the table as a possibility to make that a reality. The Senate Health and Human Services Committee gives its stamp of approval on a bill to make abortion illegal if the U.S. Supreme Court declares Roe versus Wade unconstitutional. Neva, this bill is getting mixed reaction from anti-abortion activists. Well, and the, and the 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 anti-abortion activists, the the abolitionists, are never going to be satisfied with anything but uh, a, a nullification bill that basically puts Oklahoma in a place where they're going to ignore federal case, ignore federal law, ignore the Supreme Court, and there is just no interest, I think, among most pro-life Republicans in the legislature uh, to see that uh, to see that argument move forward. Uh, so I think there is this, uh, you know, there's clearly this consternation and this give and take by these outside, you know, groups that have really, uh, they say, become, become much more energized and much more organized nationwide. That may be the case. But I think for Oklahoma, I think uh, uh, Senator Treat and others uh, moved in the, in, the, in the best way possible to make it clear where we are. We're not making, uh, in in the overall picture, Oklahoma is certainly still a strong pro-life state in terms of its legislative, uh, its, its legislative initiatives, but this was, not, this was certainly something that needed to, to be addressed in the way it was, I believe. Ryan. I, I think Senator Treat would have been better off if just not hearing Senator Silk's ridiculous nullification bill to begin with, which you know, Senator Treat, I think, pointed out, you know, this is the kind of thing that starts civil wars. Whenever, whenever a state government says we are not going to follow the supremacy clause, we're not going to follow our own state constitution that says that we uh, have to follow the supreme law of the land, which is the federal constitution. At the point that you stop doing that, that's the kind of nullification talk that leads to civil war. I mean, that's just it. And <clears throat> so I think that you know Senator Tree would have been better off just not hearing Senator Silk's ridiculous bill and moving down the legislative session and understanding that he's never going to win over the uh, the abortion abolitionist groups out there because well, of course they did decide not, they did not hear Senate Bill 13, right so they, that was, yeah they did not hear it they, but I think that they should have you know the idea that he wanted to hear this bill that would uh, would outlaw abortion in the event that Roe v Wade or Planned Parenthood v Casey are overturned by the uh, the United States Supreme Court which I think is unlikely anytime in the near future. We already have laws on the books in Oklahoma that would essentially become effective again uh, that, you know, in the event that either of those were overturned, either of those cases were overturned, that would allow 
abortion to be outlawed in the state of Oklahoma almost entirely. I mean, those are on the books right now. This this bill is really what it is. It was a political maneuver by Senator Treat to try to throw some red meat to the anti-choice groups in the state of Oklahoma, and they recognize it for the empty consolation prize that I, it is. I think Senate Bill 195 wasn't throwing red meat. I think it was making very clear the position, not only of Senator Treat, Senator Smalley, and others, but to make uh, to make the point that they that they were going to re- remain in control of this uh, of this dialogue and this uh, conversation, rather than have it just co-opted and hijacked by uh, some of these groups, many of whom were from out of state. I mean, I think that's an important point. It, it's not just a group of Oklahomans. There were many folks uh, coming in from out of state uh, in this uh, trying to, to gen up this uh, uh, debate and and, and uh, conversation. And you know that raises questions as to where you know where do these folks come from? Where does the money come from to you know mobilize them and have them come in? And and uh, uh, and I think those are questions that uh, frankly the lawmakers have just chosen to be silent on. Well, I mean, I saw a billboard earlier this week attacking Senator Smalley, saying that he was the reason that in abortion his was. In his hometown, saying that he's the reason that abortion's legal in Oklahoma. He's keeping abortion legal in Oklahoma. And they've said that about senator, other and, senators as and, well. And, you know, Senator Treat. And, and I think that what they thought that they could do was that they could shore up their pro-life bona fides by having this piece of legislation that everybody got to vote on to remind everybody, hey, that I'm pro-life. But what they did was, you know, the, the pro-choice folks in Oklahoma, they were reminded, wait a second, them not hearing this bill doesn't all of a sudden mean that they're allies of us, which I don't think that they felt anyways. But if there was any... Uh, idea that this was moving towards a, a more uh, women-friendly legislative session, uh, you know, that was went out the window. But then on the other side, the idea that they could get political points from this extreme uh, arm of the pro-life movement uh, was, you know, I think, you know, Neva said, it, you, you're never going to satisfy them unless you have a pure nullification well, bill. Goes, so why do it at all? And I think it goes the other way, too. Is it's not like uh, all the, the people who are Republicans are not going to vote for Greg Treat and, and uh, Jason Smalley just because they voted for this instead of the Senate Bill 13. So even the, 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 the anti-abortionists are still going to go. I'm still going to vote Republican. They're not going to all of a sudden turn and vote for the Democrats. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so. we're, these folks are pro-life, uh, right. pro-life lawmakers. They came in. They they ran for office on that. They're not deviating one iota from that point. And I think this sometimes just becomes a confusing sidebar uh, uh, conversation that uh, you know folks want to get to have have the have the process have it uh, have it go through. But then let's move on to other bigger and, conversations. And they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Democrats have dealt with this for years. Democrats for years have voted for pro-life legislation, hoping that it would insulate them in their general elections against a Republican attacking them for being pro-abortion. And it just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you, the most pro-life Democrat in the world is going to be attacked because they're a Democrat for being pro-abortion. But the bottom line to remember, I think, from, from the legislative outlook is that strong pro-life legislation, quality bills that, 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 uh, uh, lawmakers look at will, I think, can continue to receive a widespread support among among lawmakers and be passed. Well, those bills to me look like quality evidence-based sex education in public schools, <laughs> and, and we haven't seen those really move uh, this session. So, It's deadline week for bills to get through committees, and hundreds of bills didn't make it, which means they are now mostly dead for the session. I wanted to get your feelings on any bills which faced an early demise in the session. Ryan, let's start with you. You know, I, there's a lot to point to, but but one in particular that was it was interesting, Senate, Senate Bill 574. Uh, this is a bill uh, by Senator Allen that would have created a loyalty pledge for, for teachers, essentially saying that they, you know, that they, by becoming teachers, they had to withdraw entirely from political life. Uh, you know, this, to me, was, you know, 
of all of the attacks on teachers following the teacher walkout last year, you know, this to me was the most strident and, and uh, heavy handed. His bill died in committee earlier this week without even a motion. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that th- it got a hearing, uh, but it, it, I think it was pretty apparent from the get go that this was uh, a, just a ridiculous piece of legislation whose motives were you know, very laid uh, naked in front of the, the committee and it didn't even get a motion to advance. Neva. There was a home rule bill in the Senate that, uh, again, was one of those that I think very quickly people saw the, the troops being marshaled. You had the municipal league, you had the ag community, you had uh, health care, you had oil and gas. I mean, everyone kind of uh, make make their uh, point heard that they thought that this was a bill that needed to go nowhere and, and, and in fact, did not. So um, even though, you know, the Chamber 2030 proposal and other, you know, other reform uh, ideas have been out there about uh, doing things in terms of county officer reform and and uh, county government reform that all would require constitutional you know uh, constitutional change. But uh, I think those are the kinds of bills that you know pop up. Some get traction, some don't. I mean, we did see a flurry of activity uh, certainly uh, uh, yesterday as the as the bill de- deadline came and 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 went, where these uh, committees were you know uh, were hustling through thirty and forty and fifty bills. <laughs> to try to make deadlines. So some things never change in the process. Uh, But I do think overall, I think the takeaway is that it's been a very constructive and and fairly uh, even keel working environment out there at the legislature this year. I think Speaker McCall is kind of, uh, after uh, uh, his first session now, you know, has kind of come into his own, uh, you know, leading the House. Um, Clearly, Senator Treat on on the Senate side. I think uh, this working relationship with the governor's office seems to be very strong. And frankly, I will applaud the uh, the Democratic leaders, Emily Virgin and uh, Kay Floyd, because it appears that the, rather than just this strident rhetoric, that there's been this real uh, give and take and real interaction on on a number of bills where they can say, "Look, you have no support among among us on on this, but here's a place where we can, you know, here's a place where we can, you know." Cross the aisle and, and work together to keep some of these things moving forward in the conversation, not just dying. So uh, I think it's uh, uh, refreshing for a lot of uh, a lot of folks to see this process going on at the Capitol this year, given what we've seen in the recent past, and and hope that this will continue to play out as we get into the real uh, thick of it now with the appropriations and budgeting process, which is just now ginning up. Yeah. The governor picks three corrections reform advocates to the five-person pardon and parole board. Stitt named Kelly Doyle, Adam Luck, and Robert Gilliland, all of whom have experience in criminal justice. Neva, what are your thoughts on these appointments? I think the appointments look excellent. I mean, when you look at their resumes and you look at their backgrounds, you look at their interest in really uh, uh, being active participants on this on this board, uh, I think the governor, again, as we see him make his selections, uh, who are going to be uh, the individuals on his cabinet, who are going to be the people on these uh, boards and commissions as these uh, as these open up, I think we're seeing a very different look. And he's saying, look, I want to see people that have a kind of a fresh new outlook, a new set of eyes on on problems that exist in these areas. And um, and as I say, when you look at the uh, resumes on all three of these individuals, you have to say that they really come to the table with some real expertise to uh, uh, to, to uh, infuse into the process. Ryan, so many times we see these people who are law enforcement, mm-hmm. uh, DAs getting yep. announced to these boards, but these aren't those kinds of people. Absolutely not. I mean, this has the potential for a real sea change uh, at the Pardon and Parole Board. I mean, we're looking at it, uh, the Pardon and Parole Board. They've 
made some improvements on their backlog over the years, but they still have an incredible backlog of cases. Their recommendations that they've been making to the governor or that they're allowed to make by themselves under law, those are just a small fraction of a percentage of <clears throat> where they really should be. And we're, we trail the nation in the way that uh, we actually look at people that are up for pardon and parole. I mean, we've looked at this board for the longest time has been you know, has a, had a majority of individuals that have had a punitive mindset. I mean, there have been instances where board members have literally turned their back on applicants uh, in these pardon and parole board meetings and as a, as a sign of defiance to their application that they would even have the audacity to show up there. There are a lot of things that we need to do to make this uh, pardon and parole board system work better. We have inmates right now that refuse to even apply for, for parole because the conditions on parole, not only are they so onerous that, you know, law abiding folks that have never been in trouble with the law at all, or I shouldn't say law abiding folks, folks that haven't been caught, uh, because every one of us breaks a law every single day. And we just have the benefit of not getting caught folks that have been caught, have these onerous pro, uh, uh, conditions put on top of them that they will say, you know, it's easier for me to sit in prison, uh, for another year, or maybe another two years than it is to go out under supervised release. So we've got to change some of that. We've got to make it less expensive whenever they come out because of the fines and fees that that are on top of them when they get out. But the folks that are on this board right now, for the first time, maybe in in recent history, if if history at all, and the the board's entire history, we have a majority of folks on that board uh, that are reform-minded and recognize that a lot of the folks that we have in prisons today shouldn't be in prisons. And even the instructions he's giving to these parole boards is is he wants to see more, he wants to see more work from them getting people out of jail, doing doing the hard work that, that it takes to get more people out on the streets and being productive members of Absolutely. society. Absolutely. And, and even when he proposed in his executive budget the $150,000 to have the additional uh, pardon and parole investigators, I mean, he wants to also put in place what is needed in terms of making this a reality. And, and clearly, I mean, when you look at the fact that there was a 77% decrease uh, in in uh, uh, inmates that were granted parole release, I mean, in the, in less than a, a decade, I mean, these numbers are upside down. And so, I mean, it, it's it's going to be a give and take process, just like we're going to see in some of these criminal justice uh, bill, reform bills that are still moving through the legislature. I mean, there's there are there's some swing there. I mean, not everyone's going to sign on to every single measure in its totality, but what we need to continue to see is the forward motion. And I think the governor leads that charge by making it very clear he wants to be a real change agent in in this regard. A big shocking statement I saw in the Tulsa world about the fact that it's hard for people who come right out of prison to get jobs. 65, 70% first years don't get jobs at all because 8%, more than 8% of all Oklahomans have at one time been incarcerated, charged with a crime. That's that's a huge number. Huge number. Huge. Well, and that, that makes you know things like retroactivity of state question 780 so important because Which is not only just passed the committee, n- passed, passed the, committee, the house, passed the house. Not only does that you know take away possibly let folks out of prison right now for felonies that would be misdemeanors under the current law, but 60,000 plus Oklahomans uh, would be eligible to go back to court and be resentenced as a mis- have their sentences resentenced as a misdemeanor so that they no longer have that felony hanging over their head. You know, that's a huge change for those individuals in their lives and their livelihoods. 
And the process to make that happen, there's a lot of a lot of things that have to be put into place to make that uh, happen in an efficient, appropriate manner. And, and those are the things that I think the legislature really is going to have to key in on. And whether it's these criminal justice reforms or the pardon of parole board, one thing that's really important, I think, from leadership, from the governor, from this board, is to remind Oklahomans that none of this is perfect. There will be mistakes. There will be individuals that get out that probably shouldn't get out. But that shouldn't doom the entire progress that we have moving forward here. There you go. Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.